You have a feeling you're going to live through the war. You have a feeling it's starting to ease off. Uh, you can't account for it. It's just a gut feeling, but everybody had that feeling. I believe I might be able to live through it. So walk carefully. Take care of yourself. I just saw Colonel Sink. He's proud, too. In fact, he's so proud, he wants you to do another patrol across the river tonight. We recovered all the boats, so we'll be setting off from the same place we did last night. We're not changing the plan any, sir. No. Plan's the same. Uh, it'll be 0200 hours instead of 0100. that clear? Yes, sir. Okay. Good. Because uh, I want you all to get a full night's sleep tonight. Which means in the morning, you will report to me that you made it across the river into German lines. We're unable to secure any live prisoners. Welcome to the High Reliability Podcast. We are recording this on Thursday. November 11th, which is Veterans Day. Our thanks to all the veterans who are listening to this podcast who have served this great country in which we live. We have two veterans who are on this podcast who I will introduce and we thank them as well for their service. What you just heard, and it ties in to our podcast for today. Today we're talking about leadership lessons from the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. For those of you who have watched the series, what we played as a lead-in was Captain Dick Winters. That was the first voice that you heard talking about coming up on the end of the war. We transitioned away from Captain Winters and we pulled some cut from the episode eight of Band of Brothers, The Last Patrol. You may have recognized Damian Winters' voice, Damian Lewis's voice, excuse me. He plays Captain Dick Winters in The Last Patrol, and we thought it was appropriate to kick the episode off as we talk about leadership lessons. There are certainly many. But that was Captain Winters canceling a second mission across the river to go get ger German prisoners. The Colonel Sink wanted German prisoners. They did it once. It was successful. They did lose a man. They wanted them to do it again, but Captain Winters said no. Uh, he didn't tell command that he wasn't doing it, but he told his men that he wasn't doing it. So we let in with that. And as I said, um, today's podcast, High Reliability Podcast, is Leadership Lessons from Band of Brothers. If you aren't familiar with the show, it's a 2001 American drama. It's a miniseries that was based on Stephen Ambrose's 1992 book of the same title, Band of Brothers. It's created by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. The series won awards back in 2001 for uh, best miniseries. It was on HBO. You can see it a lot now also on uh, the History Channel. It is a great, great show. It ropes me in every single time. I could watch it every day. Briefly, uh, Band of Brothers, if you haven't watched it before, and certainly if you haven't watched it, I would encourage you to still listen to this podcast because you really don't have to have seen the show uh, to appreciate this. But Band of Brothers was a dramatized account of E Company or Easy Company. 
They were part of the 2nd Battalion, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, assigned to the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne during World War II. The miniseries is 10 episodes, and it follows the company throughout the war. They served in the European theater and were pretty much at every big uh, battle of that theater. They start with jump training at Camp Tekoa in Georgia, the show does. Then, he fo- then it's followed through their jumping to Normandy on D-Day, Operation Market Garden, the Siege of Bastogne, the Battle of the Bulge, on to the war's end where they actually take Eagle's Nest, which was a mountain summit, a uh, building on a mountain summit used by Adolf Hitler. Uh, so it shows them through all their exploits and their tragedies and triumphs during that war. We will apply in this podcast, we will apply those leadership lessons to healthcare facilities management. So I think it's going to be a, a really great um, topic. I have three guests who have joined me today. I appreciate them joining me like me. Um, they are they are people who uh, love American history, are intrigued by history. They've seen the show. Um, they love the show. So they, like me, are very passionate for a band of brothers and as i said if you haven't seen it would encourage you to watch it so who's joining us today first i'd like to welcome thomas tom elliott tom is the director of facilities at sutter medical center in sacramento california tom is also an air force veteran so tom welcome and thank you for your service thank you it's it's good to be here our second guest is jeff schuler jeff is the owner and the principal at G.H. Schuler Consulting, Mission Viejo, California. Jeff is a Navy veteran. He was also awarded multiple Navy and Marine Corps commendation medals during his service. Jeff, thank you. Welcome to the show and happy Veterans Day to you as well. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be here. And our final guest is Steve Sponbrook. Steve is the CEO at MSL Healthcare Partners, based out of Illinois. Steve lives down in North Carolina. Steve, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you, and it's an honor to be here with a a couple of veterans, and thank you to all the veterans out there who are listening. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's jump in. You know, the genesis of this, Tom and I were doing a podcast a couple of months ago, and Tom said offhand uh, he would love to do a class on leadership lessons from Band of Brothers or something like that. And like any good thief, I wrote that comment down when Tom said it, and I thought to myself, that is a really good idea, Tom. And so that is, uh, I got to thank Tom for the genesis. And, and what I'd like to do is just to kick it off. And, you know, uh, I'd like to kick the first question to Tom as uh you know, as the, the, the person who created this particular podcast. Tom, why do you think uh, the lessons from Band of Brothers, le- the leadership lessons from Band of Brothers resonate with or are applicable to, you know, healthcare, healthcare facilities management today? Uh, well, I think that, you know, that's an interesting question. I think that uh, leadership, uh, leadership in general, whether you're leading facilities management, um, something else in the hospital, something uh, outside of the hospital, you know, the leadership principles are applicable in any in any realm, right? And uh, and in facilities, as you know, as we watched, you know, part of the reason I, you know, we, when we were discussing this, part of the reason that I thought. 
uh, well, I think Band of Brothers gives some, um, you know, through the series shows some good um, leadership examples, not necessarily of good leadership, but um, leadership example, the examples that are, um, that are good uh, is that, you know, there, there's a lot of within the, within the, the series, I think there's a lot of um, examples of leadership from, uh, from um, not just like major winners and Captain Sobel, but also um, from their leadership, as well as the leadership of the enlisted and those who are really leading from the ground up as well um, throughout the series. So I think it's, uh, I think it's very applicable to facilities, just it is, just as leadership, these leadership principles are applicable in in any um, in any scenario. Is there, um, for any of you, for, for the panel, is there a leadership example in the miniseries that sticks out to you? Again, it's 10 episodes. Uh, as Tom said, I think the beauty of this miniseries is that, number one, these are real people, and it shows them both as you know, human, you know, triumph and tragedy. And as Tom said, any one of them, and in all the episodes, they're all leaders. But it's difficult to pinpoint one. Is there a leadership example, though, that sticks out to you gentlemen. Well, Pete, I'll tell you one, uh, I took advantage of this opportunity to watch the series for the 935th time or something like that. Um, one of the ones that really struck me was when they were uh, in this, I think it's episode two, when they're loading the C-47s for D-Day yeah. and Major Winters, then he was a captain or a lieutenant, I guess, at that point. Yeah. And he's helping each one of the, his, the folks that are on his aircraft up from their resting position he looks every man in the eye for a, a pregnant pause and it's just it's an unspoken i care about you as an individual uh, th for me that just meant a lot um there's so many I, I could go on for hours but that one struck me immediately it you know what's funny about that one steve i uh i was listening to a, a guy who would uh hang tough um he wrote a book about winters uh, called hang tough. And that's what winters would always say to his guys, hang tough. And they were talking about what you just described. And, and winter said that the guys had over a hundred pounds on their backpack. And you notice in the movie, winters doesn't have his, his equipment on yet. And he said, in that moment, I realized they couldn't get up unless I helped them up, which is really, you know, which is really interesting. I mean, just kind of that snap judgment and, and just a great example of leadership. They can't do it without him. And so he helped every one of those men up. So it's an instinctive reaction on his part, yeah. which is what a lot of his leadership, at least through the series and the book, seemed to be in instinctive on his part. Absolutely. You know, I think I think that's a good point too. the the amount um, that he cared for the team. And I think that can be uh, there's several contrasts, um, contrasting examples within the uh, within the series. I mean, in, in Episode, you know, we kind of see that. Um, we see that in the clip that you played at the beginning when they were on the um, when he canceled the mission to cross the river. He did that because um, he value he saw that uh, the risks were greater than what he believed um, the benefit would be, um, and the risk to their lives would be uh, greater than the benefit would be to them. But we also see that. 
we can kind of see that contrasted in the fir- in the very first episode during the training. Um, one, uh, you know, one of the one of the scenes that stands out to me is when um, at the end of a um, intense night march, um, uh, Captain uh, Sobels has everybody dump their uh, dump their <laughs> canteens, right, mm. and um, and order them not to drink from their canteens, which, you know, I, th- I think sometimes the, uh, the movie kind of gives a, um, maybe an overly negative perspective of, um, Captain Sobel's because, you know, in the book, um, everyone, you know, they, they hated him, but they, they also attributed a lot of their success to, um, how hard he drove them. But when you look at the, um, when you think about the care for, uh, care for your, the people you're leading. You think about that. I mean, that to, to go on a long, uh, I think it was a 12 mile March like that, um, without water, uh, is dangerous. Right. And, uh, you know, he was driven by, and you can see where he was driven by more by, um, the success of the March and the, or, and them following the orders than necessarily their, personal health or well-being. Uh, whereas, and I think that's a contrast to um, Winters where he, you know, he clearly cares about them and cares about their well-being. Yeah. You know, it's interesting about Sobel. Uh, I kept thinking about him. He's kind of the villain or he's painted a little bit as a villain throughout this whole series. And maybe he was, you know, obviously never met the individual or had an experience with him. But um, the one note that I made as I was going through this again, it was, I felt like whether it was an intentional act or not, he gave them during training a common enemy, which really banded these guys together uh, in a way before they had to meet the real enemy in Europe. Um, So there were a lot of things that he did, that uh, were lessons of how not to be a leader, but there were some other things that he did. I think that were positive. Um, so uh, yeah, it's just interesting to me that yeah, I think that contrast is important to understand, and that uh, I think a lot of the, the non coms and a lot of the, the officers underneath them learned a lot of valuable lessons about how not to lead the men in the field from him. You know, it was it was interesting. You both bring up some great points. Um, you know that that contrast. You know, the last patrol episode that we led this uh, uh, podcast with to the very first episode where, you know, so eloquently been, has been pointed out that, you know, he, he really was about making himself look good. And, and the men understood that. Um, and while in the moment, I'm sure they they weren't remotely interested in, in doing what needed to be done, but because they did, they they did band together as as a team and in a united front. And really, if you think about it, that's what a leader does. He causes his people, you know. Unfortunately, in this example, um, it was done in a negative way to to band together and, and figure out how to work together as a team. So really, he he accelerated the stressors of what was going to be seen in war uh, all during their training. Um, when they were in, in Curahy. So, you know, he actually did a very good job at preparing them to, you know, go into battle. What's interesting to me about Sobel, and I think you see the same thing with, uh, with Norman Dyke in the um, episode six and seven, kind of the contrast. You know, if, you, if you've watched Band of Brothers 
Sobel is played by David Schwimmer. And, you know, if, if David Schwimmer does a fantastic job um, recreating this gentleman. And actually, what they did during the filming of it, uh, I was listening to a podcast, they separated Schwimmer from the cast. They actually, they actually segregated the men by command to mimic military. And so Schwimmer was an outsider, not only as Sobel, but in the movie. But the thing that was interesting to me about Sobel, it's almost like he would have been a better number two, right? He was very good at the training part of it. He was very good logistically, but he didn't right. have that it that Winters had. And you you wouldn't follow him into combat. They didn't want to follow him into combat. But I think you guys are right. And that's why I like the show is because it's not black and white. There's layers to these people. And I find myself conflicted with Sobel, you know, because he certainly does portray himself. And, you know, the men called him petty, commandeering, inflexible, um, some some sinister. So he did have that. And the men felt that. But, you know, he was also, uh, as you said there, Jeff and Steve, he, you know, he developed them. And certainly the, um, you know, their their ability and that their endurance um, he helped. So he's a he's kind of an interesting character who ended up committing suicide many years later in the 70s. So a tragic story, really, in many ways. Well, you know, certainly Colonel Sink recognized that he had some positive attributes you know, mm. and Sink, his leadership's uh, examples are kind of up and down in this. You know, we started with the scene where you know, it's kind of the negative part of Sink's leadership. But, you know, throughout the series, obviously, he was a, a fairly good leader. and Most of the lessons are positive. But I think one of the positive ones was he recognized that Sobel was not going to be good in the field. He recognized that because the non-coms were brave enough to come up and say, we don't want to serve him <laughs> underneath this guy anymore. Um, but it, rather than just you know, fire him, he, he found a way to, to elevate him, um, help him retain some of his confidence and take advantage of his competence, which was to send him to a training school. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that I think good leaders do is they look at their team and say, you know, this is maybe not the best road for them, but there's another road over here where I can really maximize their skills and, and make them successful. So, you know, that, that brings up a great point that, you know, if you think about all the team members that are required to, you know, operate a hospital, certainly in our field of engineering, you know, there, there might be quite a few really talented people that are just not performing in the right slot to support the team at that organization. So really, um, it comes back to, uh, you know, the, the leader, if you're a new guy coming in or a gal coming in, uh, being able to assess that pretty quickly and, you know, find a way for uh, those people to be more effective uh, within the organization. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, that means they have to go outside the organization as well. You know, I, th I think those are all um, great points. And, you know, I was thinking this as well during, uh, you know, as we look at, um, and Jeff, you're absolutely right. We have to, you know, to look at the, you know, build on, you know, build on strength, I think. Oh, who was it? Um, our, our job is to uh, another podcaster that I, I listen to says, uh, you know, our job as leaders is to build on, build on strengths and uh, minimize the, uh, the effect of the weaknesses. Right. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I, um, you know, the contrast for Sobel, I think the other important part of, of this is that, um, you know, when you look at, facilities leadership and leadership in the civilian world versus a combat situation. Um, I think you're right. Putting him, having Sobel as a training 
as a training leader um, was effective because, you know, whether it was um, right, wrong, or indifferent, um, giving them a common enemy to build them as a team, prepared them for the fight ahead. They, um, in the book, they said, um, because I was just kind of looking at the book and comparing to some of the uh, series in the book, he said, uh, you know, when they, they were at, when the, uh, when Ambrose asked uh, all the, the survivors who, you know, is it, you know, did you succeed because, uh, because of Sobel or in spite of him? And most said both. But I think, I think the important thing to uh, keep in mind though, is that in a, you know, in a long term, you know, that's good for training, but your training only lasts for so long. Um, what he didn't get from what he didn't build from the team is a level of respect or trust. And I think when you're looking at, you know, in, in training, you know, you, you bring somebody in, you train them hard, they, they build a skill set, and then you send a, and then you send them off into the world. However, when we look at facilities leadership and long-term leadership, I don't, you know, that's, that probably wouldn't, that's, I don't, I've never seen that to be effective um, long-term because, you know, once you're in the, you know, once you're in the field, once you're at, you know, in your hospital, you know, you're leading, you're leading this group of people for years. And if you don't have a level of respect or trust from that team, it's going to be very difficult. I think it's going to be, it would be very difficult to lead them. Oh, you, you're absolutely right. I think uh, um, just to, to pivot up for a moment, uh, you, you talked about, uh, you know, one of the things that Sobel was very good at was, you know, drilling down deep and, and following, um, you know, the, not the rules necessarily, but, and so what that contrasts is really what's needed, especially in our field is, you know, that adaptability when you're actually out doing it, right. You have to have nimbleness, to make some decisions on the fly. And what we saw so many examples of was his inability mm. to um, adjust to the ever-changing field of battle, which of course is exactly what we have to do is in our field is adjust to the ever-changing needs of the facilities that we're running. So, you know, really it comes back to how do you teach people how to anticipate better, right? Because Because you have to aim ahead of where you're at. Because what we know to be true is what you – what you did to get you here where you are today is not what you're going to need to take you where you need to go. Well, you know, you, you make a great point there and it's contrasted. I mean, you, you know, winters who just seemed to be a natural leader contrasted to Sobel. And then there was another great example, Jeff, you were talking kind of about that inflexibility. And I think it's at the end of episode three or four, but it's when Malarkey, when they're back over in England, I think, and, and Malarkey and somebody else, they steal the, the, the scooter there. Um, and Sobel sees them and Sobel takes it back from them. And I'm just kind of paraphrasing here. But what was interesting of that, before they shipped back to England, they had asked, um, Malarkey asked uh, Buck Compton. Uh, they said, you know, Lieutenant Compton, can we take the scooter back? And Compton said to them, I don't care what you do. He said, if you guys can get it back, then you have it. It's yours. So Compton gave him the go ahead. Yet they get it back and now hear Sobel taking it from them. So that was his job that, you know, as Sobel said, it's U.S. Army property. But it just shows you the difference in, in the leadership styles. And I don't know that Sobel was ever able to get away from the book or kind of that, you know, that straight rule of thumb, um, which was probably to his detriment. Right. And so what that illustrates is, you know, following the rules 
that's all good for, you know, processes. But when you're talking about people, you have to be able to, you know, read what's going on in the moment and make the adjustments required so that, you know, the, the outcome that's desired by everybody is achieved because, you know, rules are guidelines, right? And sometimes they have, you know, foundation and basis and, and, you know, some legal aspects, but more often than not, it's just, you know, a, a better way to run a uh, facility because everybody needs to have some consistency of understanding of how the, how the facility needs to be run. Yeah. I think it goes back. I mean, it's, he was really good at logistics, right? And logistics Mm. are predictable and predictable uh, works well with, with proven processes and that are strictly adhered to, but in the field that's much more dynamic, uh, that's where a whole different skill set is necessary. And, and like Jeff said, being able to look ahead, name ahead, and and anticipate um, and, and be flexible, I think. And that's where, of course, winners excelled. You know, if you think about it, the two of them really made a pretty good team. Yeah. <laughs> Even they probably hated it. They, and they're depicted as not liking yeah. each other very much. And there's certainly some jealousy on Sobel's part and some anim- probably some resentment from Winter's part. Um, and that's all throughout the, the whole series. But uh, and, and not to take a left turn on here, but I don't want to uh, let this get by without talking about Lipton a little bit. Carver mm-hmm. Lipton, who was the, the sergeant, the non-com, who I think was probably the most natural leader next to winners in the whole company. Um, just a, an amazing guy that uh, sort of instinctively knew what his men needed and provided it uh, individually, you know, and that, that probably is the most apparent during the, the uh, battle of the bulge episode. I can't remember which episode that is, but where he just you know really, uh, did what he had to do to keep those guys together under circumstances that I can't even comprehend. Yeah. No, I, I mean, uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, go, go, Jeff. I was going to say episode six and seven, Steve, that's what you're talking about. Episode six was bestowed and then seven was the breaking point. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think Lipton had shown all the way throughout from the very first episode to the end, you know, that he was, not the unofficial leader, because certainly he was in leadership positions. And but what he did show were the the strengths, um, and and the the weaknesses that all leaders have, and that he was vulnerable, you know, and and how things were happening. But he was also authentic, and so that came through uh, as a, a way for men to trust what he said that he had their best interest at heart. And so it, it is true, uh, very well said by the the characters in the, in the movie that, you know, there has been somebody there that's been their leader the entire Mm. time. And that's often the case when we get into our facilities, you, you, we all see people that are doing what's required uh, to lead um, everybody that's, that's there uh, and, and including in, in anticipating what's, what needs to be happening in the future. Yeah. Sort of the next man up thing, right. You know, Lieutenant Dyke, who was supposed to be leading the company wasn't very effective. So Lipton really had no choice, but to step in and do his job and Dyke's as well and did it. Exactly. Apparently without even noticing it. Cause uh, <laughs> the, the, the scene you're referring to is when Spears says, tells him, you know, uh, apparently they've had a leader the whole time. And he goes, you have no idea who I'm talking about. Do you? No, sir. <laughs> you know, you know, the, um, you know, I think that also highlights just the importance, you know, from uh, my role as a, as a facility director, you know, that, you know, to, I see 
it's the value and the importance of leadership from the you know from the frontline staff from the engineers um, themselves in facilities and um, you know I have I have several lead engineers who I lean heavily upon for the you know the technical side and and they have um, and they have a great deal of respect from the entire team and and the successes of the team and the success and the um, effectiveness of our department is uh, I would say mostly uh, because of how they lead from their positions from basically leading from the middle, right? Um, They're not management um, per se. So, you know, they, uh, but, but they know how to, but they know how to get things done. And, you know, my, and I think that, when you look at winners and you and you looked at look at Lip, Lipton, Lipton, the how much they um, and I think they understood. I think winners understood that, and you saw the support of Lip, Lipton as a leader, whether uh, Lipton realized it or not. No, it, yeah, that's absolutely true. The the you know one of the, the higher you go in an organization, you know, the more you're going to have to rely on relationship skills and. What was you just talked about, Tom, was how well people are doing that, even when they're not considered high up in the organization. But boy, don't we all know that those those what would be considered middle middle um, level skills um, or positions certainly are the most um, compelling touch points within the organization that keep it going, simply because of how well other people are leading by doing what they know is the right thing. Yeah, I think you, that, oh, go ahead. I was, I was going to say quickly, you look at a guy like, like Lipton, you know, we talk about leadership. He's just unassuming, right? He does his job. He does what's ever needed. He, you know, they all have egos. We all have egos, but his ego is in check. He just does whatever you need. And whether you're playing on a sports team or you're in a healthcare facility, those are the folks that you need and that you count on because it's always about team. It's never about them. And what I was going to chime in there with is, you know, the, the team sort of expands. If you, if you think about how the, the sergeants like Gardner and Rambleman, mm-hmm. um, you know, they were a team to, as they led their teams. You know, they were they were the non-coms, but they, you could tell they were very tight. They communicated well. Um, they also did things. You know, one of the, the examples that popped out to me was when uh, I guess it's called the replacements when they're about to jump into Holland and Randleman's, you know, walks up to one of the new guys and starts, you know, stripping things off of his pack and, uh, you know, basically says, you know, that this is what the books and I'm paraphrasing now because it's unspoken, but here's what the book has taught you and what you learned in basic, but here's what we've learned from experience. And, you know, uh, and he's imparting that to those newer folks. Um, and that was across the board, but, you know, and some of the other scenes where, you know, some of these NCOs speaking with men that reported to other NCOs would support them by saying, you know, you know, for example, Randleman's the smartest guy in the company. Listen to everything <laughs> he says, those kinds yeah. of things. I mean, that's leadership. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let's uh, pivot a bit because you guys have mentioned it and I think you alluded to it there. Let's talk about training for a second and or maybe even more than a second, however long you guys want it. But I guess training, I mean, you know, if we tie it right now to healthcare facilities management, we have, you know, a lot of departments understaffed, you're losing people, 
COVID vaccination. So you're losing people, you're trying to find people, and what usually falls by the wayside is probably training. And if you look at Band of Brothers um, under a training perspective, if you start right at episode one, you know, one of the things that they did before they jumped into Normandy was the training and 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 uh, Lieutenant Meehan, the guy who replaces Sobel, he, they show him talking to the men before they jump in. And he, and he says to them, you know, you need to know your mission and you need to know everybody other's mission before we jump in. And they studied sand tables and they studied topography of Normandy so that when they did jump in and when they did get separated, they knew where they had to go because they knew that terrain so well. Now they did have the, the, the luxury of time there. And so we look at that great training they got to be able to jump in Normandy, get separated from your unit, and then know where you need to go. You contrast that to the replacement, Steve, that you were just talking about. By episode four, when you're just shipping men across the Atlantic and their training isn't as good, they're getting killed. And you see that in episode four where the guys who had been there, they didn't want to get close to the replacements because they knew they would die and they were afraid of that. They didn't have the training. We saw it episode three, and then I'll stop with, uh, with Blythe, the Albert Blythe episode. When Blythe gets shot at the end, I was I was reading something that Winters wrote. At the very end of that episode, Blythe gets shot in the neck. And Winters said the reason he got shot in the neck, it's when they're approaching, he gets shot by a sniper. He's going up to a house. And Winters said that he was trained so well that rather than know that there was a sniper there, Blythe yelled click, which is what they were trained. And that's when he got shot because he fell back on the training and, and Winters wasn't criticizing him for it. He was like, the training said click and that's what he fell back to. So it's, he was trained so well that it impacted him. And I would just say one other thing before I want you guys to talk about training and how we see training very effectively at the beginning and it falls off. This series does a really good job, I think, recreating it. But as Tom Hanks said, we can't take four years and put it into 10 episodes. One of the misses of this series is actually Blythe doesn't die. It says at the end of episode three that Blythe dies in 47 or 48 due to that. Blythe actually went on to live. I think it was 1967, fought over in Korea. So Blythe lived another 21 years um, and stayed in the Army. So that's an interesting miss. But talk a little bit about training. And, you know, you two, Steve, uh, Jeff and, and Tom, you were in the military. Talk about training, the importance of training in this episode, and then tying it to what we're go what's going on in healthcare facilities today, where, you know, because of money, personnel, a variety of issues, training may not get the importance it needs. Yeah, I think sorry to uh, jump in, but maybe I think this illustrates the point um, that training is something that occurs uh, from the outside in. Right, you show up. You become exposed to concepts or ideas or processes, and you're taught, right? So that's the training aspect of it. But when you really learn something is by actually going and doing it. So, you know, you need to be very conscientious and aware that just because somebody's been exposed to something doesn't mean that they've learned it. And what's the difference as we, you know, use the, the uh, movie in the series to illustrate what we're talking about, you, you learn by doing and so while the training was, was done as well as they could do it without actually being in combat, um, they were actually practicing um, ways to do things that actually uh, hurt somebody uh, because when it came down to actually doing it for real, 
they fell back on how they trained. So there's that old adage that says, you know, you, you fight how you train. And so make sure that you're training the right <laughs> things and that you're, you're accessing the right um, people and the right resources to do things how it's actually going to happen. Great point. No, I think I agree. The, uh, I think training is, is so important. We, um, and you know, in the, it's during the run of the, you know, run of the mill day to day, you go through your checklist, you do, um, the team, you know, they have alarm goes off. They find out why that they figure out why the alarm on the BMS is going off. And, um, and that's simple enough, but, but when, um, but when those things happen that are, uh, out of the normal, right. Um, a few weeks ago, we had a two hour power outage in, um, in my, um, for, uh, and for whatever reason, the utility couldn't um, took t- um, two hours to get us switched to the secondary feed, <laughs> and so we were um, and so, and it never and it seems to and that kind of thing never seems to happen um, during the you know during the day shift when most of the team's there, right? Uh, <laughs> it always happens. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> it, it, uh, you That's know, the it, rule. It was on a Sunday not Sunday at evening on the swing shift. Um, you know, and so, uh, and as I, you know, and I, I of course ran in, uh, and, um, uh, took my role answering phones and, uh, and walking around with the nursing soup, uh, and checking on the front, uh, the nurse nursing staff and making sure that everybody had what they needed. Cause, uh, you know, we were, uh, cause we lost network at the same time. And so as we, uh, and telephone too, um, uh, at the same time. And as we, as we worked through that, I was able, you know, I sat there in the, I sat in our energy center, um, uh, and I started, started asking questions. Hey, why is, you know, you know, why is, uh, why is this a sequence of operations for the, um, for the ATS is, you know, power's back. Why haven't we switched over here, here and here yet? And, um, and my, my engineer, very, you know, good engineer, but, you know, it's, they don't experience that kind of thing a lot. Right. And it's not in their, the basic normal training. Cause it's a, it's a relatively large campus and it's a central plant. So, you know, and, and it kind of highlights exactly what you're saying, I think is that, you know, it, uh, you know, you're, you do, we do the training, we show, okay, this is, this is what you do in an emergency. But then when the emergency is happening and the phones are ringing off the hook, and then you've got 10 people walking through the door and you've got all these other things, um, you can, the training only does so much. So I think that it, um, an important aspect of the training is not so much, not just the rote learning of when this happens, do this, but you know, how to think through the problems, right? Yes. And how to get exactly how to, manage how to self-manage those changes because you know you're not going to have you may not have management on site you may not have somebody so you so this engineer may have to deal with every aspect of it um, for a period of time and just making sure that that person has those as you said critical um, thinking skills um, to uh, to manage the situation um, without panicking um, is incredibly important you know, I, I think you're exactly right. And and I'm curious what Steve's experience has been when he goes in and, and helps, uh, you know, facilities, uh, you know, work through the issues that uh, he's there to assist them with. I, I can tell you that uh, one of the techniques that I use is to ask them, hey, talk to me about a time when 
something happened out of the norm that uh, went well. And so they, you know, I give them a few minutes to tell me what, uh, what they experienced. And then I dive down a little bit deeper and ask them why they felt that it, they responded so well. And then I contrast that and I, and I ask them to tell me the same thing, like, okay, what, what was something that happened that didn't go so well? And, and I'm not so much concerned about that it didn't go well. I'm more concerned about how come they think it didn't go well. And we kind of have that conversation for a little bit longer time and really drive home the point of what you're talking about. It is about how you uh, understand what it is you need to be doing when things are happening quickly and other resources that you have aren't necessarily available. You know, Tom, you, you had mentioned you, know, you lost comms, you lost your phones. Well, that made it a little bit harder to communicate. So, you know, I'm sure Steve's had some of these experiences as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I mentioned critical thinking and I I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's just such an important skill up and down the line in facilities management, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, We had an incident a couple of years ago uh, where a Sunday morning, you know, nobody's at the hospital except the swing shift person and, uh, you know, lost power. The uh, utility second feed, uh, there was a failure uh, on that switch. Um, and then there was also a switch gear failure, software failure. So we lost power. The second feed didn't take and the generators didn't start. So for 37 minutes, the hospital was dark. Um, fortunately, there was an electrician there who, and many uh, I think a lot of people would not have thought of this person as a leader within the organization. Um, but he certainly stepped up when, uh, he was not on call, uh, had no responsibility to be there other than he just chose, he realized something bad was going on and he got in his car and drove to the hospital within a few minutes had diagnosed the situation and, and bypassed the software problem and got power back on, um, to some critical areas. Uh, it was a real lesson for me. Uh, we spent a lot of time doing the, the debrief of that and got to interview not only the facility staff, but the clinical staff. And, uh, you know, it, it was interesting lessons all the way around. I, I can't go into too much detail without, you know, obviously breaching some confidences, but absolutely, you know, these things happen. Um, and, you know, having the ability, empowering people to learn for one and giving them the opportunity to make decisions within the moment without, fearing for their position or, uh, or other, you know, uh, ramifications, I think is really important. Yeah. I think that also um, begs the question that as people come to us as leaders and ask questions, a lot of times they're asking questions because they truly don't know. There are other times, which happens in my opinion, far too often where they're asking for uh, the answers because they don't want to take risk. And, you know, part of being a leader is all about taking risk, right? Being vulnerable, uh, reasonably so. And, and because you don't know what the outcome is going to be, you're uncertain. So if we aren't helping our people learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable and taking appropriate risk at the appropriate time, um, that's, that's a learned skill that if we just answer questions and send them on their way because it's easier or it's faster, um, or you just don't want to deal with, you know, having to nurture and, and teach, you know, and, and mentor somebody, we're, we're doing people a disservice. Oh, absolutely. I think when you create a culture and unfortunately, I think 
Oh man, I'm, gonna be, I'm probably going to regret saying this, Pete. You might want to cut it out, but I think <laughs> our, uh, the culture and health. I'm ready. Care, <laughs> yeah, edit. Boop, gone. Um, the uh, the culture and healthcare that's pervasive anyway is one that is mm. uh, a little more punitive than it should be, and 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 part of what drives that is the litigious nature of healthcare, and and you know we could get into all the kinds of discussions about that, and we won't need to go down that road, but you know people whenever you have people who are doing their job from a position of fear of doing something wrong, they are being restrained from doing something really good. And I think if we're ever going to get to the point where we're truly high reliability and we're not having the kind of preventable medical harm rates that we're experiencing today, we're going to have to get beyond that. You guys, and, and I'd like you to chime in, but you know, as you're talking about this and Tom, please go next. I didn't mean to jump in, but the, you know, the idea of the 506th infantry was always, and you see this a lot in the show is we stand alone together, right? Isn't that a great mantra? We stand alone together. It's almost what you guys are describing is almost the opposite in many ways of we stand alone together. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, as I, as I kind of, as we kind of been discussing this, I think, uh, I see there's some, some great points there too. The, uh, I think it, it does come to a matter of it goes back to a level of, again, trusting our, you know, being non-punitive and trusting our people to make good decisions uh, along the way. And sometimes that's because of training, but sometimes that's just because they've experienced everything and they know and they've they've seen it all. Um, you know, I've got engineers who have been with us for 40 some years. So, right. you know, they they've seen a lot. They've seen a lot more out there than I have. And. Um, and I think that's something that we actually see in winters in the, um, in the series as well, where he, he gives it, he says, okay, here's our marching orders. Here's what you're, here's what we've got to do. He d makes the assignments and then he trusts them to do it. I mean, he's, right. he holds them accountable. He still follows up to make, to see to it that everything was done, but he trusts the, but he trusts the team to, uh, to do, to do what they're told. I mean, I've, I've had several conversations with quite a few people uh, in the industry lately, and there seems to, and what I've seen is, you know, uh, in healthcare, in some of the in folks I've talked with, with, and Pete, you, you talk with a lot more people, in, uh, and you guys talk with a lot more people in the industry than I do, but one thing that I, I, I've started hearing more of than I thought would be common was that, um, where facilities leaders don't necessarily trust their engineers, there seems to be a division there. They they don't you know they don't trust their engineers to get it done, um, and or they're they're not engaged with the the front line, right? Yeah, and that's yeah. something that we see in winters. He was completely engaged with the team the entire time. Well, and you know what I think is really interesting about winters, and it kind of shows the evolution from um, even. From sure you guys in, in your career journey, your leadership journey, if you look at episode one, and as you guys said, I mean, Winter's rockets through, you know, from promotions. I mean, he, he's a lieutenant, uh, comes a captain, major. He, he does it all very quickly. But yet you see his evolution as a leader, right? By episode, what is it? Episode four or five after Crossroads, um, now he's being promoted. And he's not that hand. He never fires his gun again after Crossroads when he takes out the the German SS uh, troops. 
but yet you see him having to let go with Moose Heiliger when Easy Company goes in and, and rescues those English paratroopers who were behind enemy lines. And you see it in the movie where he's got to grapple with, okay, Moose is leading this. I'm not leading this. I'm writing reports. He didn't like it, but you see it. Then you see it again with Dyke. And that's another area where I think that the, uh, the, the show does a little bit. If you remember in the show, um, when we're talking about the breaking point right before Winters turns to Spears and says, listen, you get out there, replaces Dyke. In, in the show, it's uh, Colonel Sink pulling Winters back. In reality, I guess what happened was Winters pulled himself back. Winters was going to go and then he's like, no, I can't do that. But anyways, that's an evolution, right? And that's, Tom, what you get to with the trust. You know, some directors don't trust their people. They try to go out there and do it for them. But you see that evolution in Winters, and it's probably why he was such a great leader. I mean, here's a guy who wants to be out there in the field, wants to be with his guys, but he realizes, I can't be. I, I'm in a different, you know, I'm in a different leadership position now. You know, what's interesting is um, as we, as we're, I'm listening to this and all the great um, thoughts are coming out and, and actual truths that we know about leadership is that at some point there does take uh, there does does need to be a, a some sense of humbleness uh, mm. in leaders, and and that comes out in understanding that you're often not the smartest guy in the room about right. whatever the mm. topic happens to be. So, mm. do you have the ability to recognize that, and more importantly, do you have the ability to show your um, you know, staff and the people that you work with that you trust what they're going to do because there's usually more than one way to do something. <laughs> and are you okay with it not being the way you would do it? Mm. Um, and so that really comes down to, you know, being able to, you know, more, uh, more reflection on your part when it's not uh, in a crisis situation. But when you do have time to reflect, which is something that all leaders do, they take time uh, that's scheduled out of their day or week and they reflect, hey, what went well? What didn't go as well? What do I want to get better at? How can I help the team get better? Um, and when you when you find out what those answers are, it creates the opportunity for other people to uh, bring to the front their skills and, and letting them go forward and it, and it feels different to them when you do that. Um, when you run in and say, no, we got to do this. Well, okay, that, that could be true. Um, however, like we said, often you aren't the smartest guy in the room. And for people that, that recognize that, those truly tend to be uh, people that have a, a better um, leadership experience. I think that, you know, that um, exactly. And I think that there's also, you, you know, I think that's something we talked about training for the front line, but also when, as we train future uh, facilities leaders, I think this is an important point that, that, you know, we, that needs to be really taught. I mean, if we have leaders growing up uh, through facilities and um, up from the, uh, from the trades or engine um, as engineers to uh, managers and directors, you know, those, those um, key members typically, because they've been through it, they tend to be more hands-on and, and that's, it's hard. Sometimes I had a, a manager once, uh, he, he, he would get frustrated oftentimes because, you know, he was, as an engineer, he was used to being able to do something, complete it, stand back and say, look, a job well done. And then he went into, and then he was dragged into management and, and then he would do something and not see results for years. And, uh, <laughs> and that's something that a lot of, I think that the, 
from that, when we bring leaders up from that direction, but then we also have a situation now, I think now, and Pete could probably speak, would definitely be able to speak more to this. I'm sure the, you know, it's getting harder to find experienced, um, facilities leadership these days. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we're starting to see, starting to see, um, healthcare facilities leaders being pulled from other industries and from without and folks coming in from without health necessarily healthcare experience. And for them, they have to trust the teams under them because they, they literally don't know. Right. I, I, you know, what's a little more troubling and you're, you're exactly right there, Tom. Um, like we knew that the baby boomers were going to retire. Um, and COVID probably uh, put some of that off um, in a way, you know, folks hung around and, and tried to see their facilities through. But what's a little more troubling to me is the people who are not baby boomers, not retiring, but they're leaving the industry to go to other industries. And I'm seeing a little bit more of that. Um, and I hope that doesn't become a trend but more and more they're going to whether it be education environments or manufacturing environments. And I think, you know, as a, as an industry, we really need to be cognizant of that because you guys know this. I'm sure there are tons of people right now approaching that burnout phase and yeah. they can go, you know, these are transferable skills in healthcare. If you've done it at a hospital, you know, then you can, you can take a step back and do it in other industries. And so, you know, it's not the point of this, but you know, actually, to, to tie it into another leadership lesson, remember getting guys off that front line, right? Winter says that to Malarkey uh, in the last patrol after Malarkey sees his two best buddies blown up in the foxhole. And he did say, he's like, Malarkey, you want to get off the front line? Because Winter's understood. I mean, I, he said, and Jeff, you would know this better. He said, even two hours off of a front line can do a man good. And I think oh, it, we're at that point in healthcare where you know, you've been through 22 months of all out, straight out, might be time to pull some of these people off the front line to a work like work life balance because I think a lot of people are approaching that. Sorry, Jeff, go right ahead. No, no, that was <laughs> a, that was a great um, point that you made, and and it is critical to you know just get getting even an hour of mm -hmm. you know time where you're not feeling the pressure and whatever pressure you happen to be under. It it all applies and works on you the same way, right? Stress. Um, your brain processes stress the exact same way it processes pain. Um, <laughs> so it, it is very cognitively the same. So, you know, we, we need to make sure that, that, you know, when we see people undergoing continuous and uh, consistent stressors in their life, and it could be professional and personal or whatever it happens to be, that we're able to, you know, afford them the opportunity to, you know, maybe decompress a little bit. Yeah, I think we're we're definitely at that point. One of the other things I want to mention, you talked about the leader being selfless, um, is ego. I think there's a, um, you know, putting the recruiting hat on again for another second, taking the Siskel and Ebert hat off. Um, you know, there are directors, and I know you guys have dealt with folks like this before, um, who are removed because they can't control their ego. You know, it's all about them. And, you know, that's another area where I think as far as leadership is concerned, we don't talk about ego a lot, but keeping that ego in check is pivotal and important. I th no, I think you're, you're right. And just as we've said, um, it's interesting, just as we saw in the, uh, again, in the first episode with how the um, NCOs 
uh, approached the, um, you know, uh, approached Colonel Sink about their struggles with a, uh, uh, with Captain Sobel. Uh, I think you, um, I, you know, I've seen that, I've seen that in facilities uh, mm. where, you know, if, uh, if the, if the manager's ego, I've seen manager's egos um, over, you know, really take over there. And in the end, the team doesn't abide it. And unlike the military, when you have organizations without necessarily the chain of command um, and the structure that they have in the, you know, in the military, um, most, you know, what I've seen is most of the time those, those leaders in, in the civilian side don't last because <laughs> the employees mm. have another, have other ways of dealing with them. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's illustrated really well in uh, band of brothers in this, the first episode when they're in the field with Sobel training and uh, Lutz does <laughs> imitates Colonel sink when they're come up, come up against that barbed wire fence. That's hilarious. And, uh, you know, basically that was, that was the breaking point for Sobel. I think, um, you know, that was one of the funnier parts of that series, but you're right. I mean, if, if people sense that and typically they have a way of dealing with that. When you were talking about punitive, I know a couple of you guys were mentioning uh, directors or, or leaders who are punitive. Certainly sync could have been punitive to those NCOs who, you know, went into his office and said, listen, we're not going to battle with, with, with Sobel. Um, he did have the hammer. Now you might say, well, they're preparing for an invasion. He can't get rid of his NCOs, but nevertheless, he, he could have, he could have disciplined them and he didn't. Yeah. Well, you know, he busted one of them to, he got rid of one, busted he, he one did. to private and then he kept yes. the rest of them. And I think that was very calculated. Yep. I mean, obviously as calculated as it could be in the, in the moment. Um, you know, he set the example, but then he also recognized he needed that, that team. And I think he also recognized that it, that it took a tremendous amount of courage for those guys to do that. Um, and, and hopefully if there's leaders in healthcare that when, when, you know, the, the supervisors of the, the world come and go over someone's head, they realize that takes significant courage. It's not an easy thing to do. And typically it's not done out of, you know, some kind of need to just make someone look bad. You know, what's interesting is you're exactly right. And what's interesting is by the time you get to the point where you have to make the decision that Colonel Sink did about what to do with Sobel, um, that already in and of itself is a failure of the process that's allowed ego to mm. go unchecked. Right. Mm. And so whether it's, um, you know, somebody that uh, is junior talking to a senior to not challenge for the sake of challenging authority, but challenged out of care and concern, um, you know, really giving that person an opportunity to understand what's going on. Clearly in the series, we, we, the illustration of Sobel was going to say that he was unwilling to self-assess whether it really was his ego or did he have his, his men's best interest at, at heart. And, and it's going to daylight itself pretty quickly when you start asking questions like that. You know that you know that brings up a thought in my mind, and, and really a, a question for uh, you guys is, you know, what you maybe your thoughts on this, but the effect of subordinates on leaders. Um, for instance, you know, we we talk about Captain Sobel's, but and how the men reacted to him um, and acted toward him. When you when you 
but as you we go through that episode, you see that it seems to it almost it seems to make him worse, right? Because he sees the disrespect, so he's so Sobel works harder to try to for, enforce that respect. You know what? Right? And it's I've a, seen, a, and I well, if I may finish, and just real quick, uh, you know, and I and I've honestly and I've seen this where I've seen. Um, where, you know, like for instance, young, I've seen young administrators, uh, basically get trained in a way by very difficult directors under them. Right. Um, where they are ba- almost trained not to be trusting because of how the subordinate acts towards them. What do you think? What do you think about, um, how do you think about, um, that, that, that dynamic? You know, it's interesting. Um, what we know to be true is that um, everybody reacts differently to different people. But what's also true is that um, if it really is about um, your ability to be seen as the leader and successful, then you're going to fail. And you're not going to fail a little bit. You're going to fail grandly. And because <laughs> what happens is you um, tend to fail by overuse of a strength. So if you think about that and put it in perspective, we all have strengths that we bring to the table. And what we end to tend to do when we start getting stressed is we start relying on that strength and, and it quickly becomes a detriment. So what we need to, to do is to you know, step back and be, and be patient uh, with ourselves and then try and understand what's going on. However, the ego gets in the way, right? And uh, we just can't abide by being shown that we didn't know, we weren't smart enough, we didn't make the right decision because that's humiliating to people that have to be right. So there's a there's an internal struggle that's going on there. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You could, the more we talk about Sobel, you could, you could just do, I'm sure they have, <laughs> you know, classes on it. But I think fundamentally, at least for Sobel, getting back to the, you know, the show, he probably saw, I mean, he was going up against the homecoming queen, right? And his jumpiness in the field and his inability to to translate to the field. I I wonder if he knew, I wonder if he saw the writing on the wall for him, you know, that he would never gain the respect of the men, that they would never trust him because inside he couldn't do it. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I don't know that I couldn't do it either. <laughs> but I'm wondering how much of that battle Sobel waged internally. I think he must have sensed some of that. Um, it's hard to tell from yeah. the other brothers, but it, you know, you, he was clearly an intelligent guy with a lot of experience. And, um, and, and, you know, some of the, I'm thinking through some of the scenes where he showed his ineptitude, like, you know, uh, having him leave a defended position to, only to get ambushed. And then, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the, the one that I already mentioned where he let him, you know, he was off a whole grid on the map and yeah. those things he had to, those moments, no, wow, this is, you know, I'm really screwing up. Here. Right. You know, what's, it, you know yeah. what's interesting about that is that uh, what that illustrates, I think, is that people are less concerned about the fact that you make mistakes. They're more concerned about whether you accept it, own it, Mm. Want and then show them that you want to learn from it. Now that takes an incredible amount of humility in order to be able to do that, especially if you're seen. If your if your success is wrapped up in your ability to be seen as the guy in charge. Yeah, 
Jeff, you'll yeah. love this analogy. I think one of the best examples of that are how the Blue Angels debrief every single flight, right? Exactly. You know, it doesn't matter what your rank is or what your position is. You know, the first thing they do is they admit their mistakes and then they say, I'm going to fix it. And that's their, you know, their routine and their contract. But it's also, I think it, when you've seen it play out in the 75 year history of the team, that when there's people that don't fit into that, uh, they end up not filling their full tour. You know? right. and, and to a bigger point, that, that really talks to your point earlier about culture, right? And so really what's the culture that we're all in, depending upon what facility we're working for, does it support that type of process and uh, openness and, or doesn't it, right? Is it a toxic uh, environment that's going to, you know, not allow that to, to become reality? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think ultimately cultures are shifting over time as, as the generations are moving along and, you know, the pathway to, to facilities engineering positions has changed in the, gosh, I hate to even say this 30 years that I've been doing this now. <laughs> right. Um, wow. I feel old in the moment. Um, but I mean, it was changed dramatically from, you know, someone who's been in the, the boiler house and proven to be a competent mechanic and understanding the, the, all of the, the, you know, technical parts of engineering and then they become a manager. Um, and, you know, they kind of get you know, it's sort of the Peter principle, not Peter Martin, but the Peter <laughs> principle. Uh, in it could be there, Steve. Right? It could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I resemble that remark. Right. Um, you know, but you, know, you see that. And in fact, my early in my career, that's kind of what, we did was we helped people who kind of got to that point in their careers and needed, you know, help with you know getting ready for joint commission and making sure we're compliant with OSHA and, and the state and everything else. And you know, we kind of filled that void for them. That's how I got my start in the industry. Um, but now, you know, the entry is, is not typically that way. Um, and that, I think it's, in, in itself is shifting the culture a little bit because the people who are entering mm. the industry or someone were coming from outside and others are coming from college and that sort of thing have a different, you know, background. You know, um, just one last thing on, on, on Sobel cause we've spent so much time on them, but, um, and then I want to shift to it to another type of question. Um, you know, what we do know about Sobel, as we said, you know, post-war, the poor man, I mean, he did try to commit suicide, failed. He was blind. He had strained relationships with his kids. So, you know, if you, if you do, a, you know, if you read up on him a little bit post-war, whatever happened there, it did affect him. And it wasn't for the good. I mean, I know that, you know, they used to do uh, reunions, that easy company would do reunions. And they said we would invite him and he, and he wouldn't go. And so, you know, he was a man um, and we all have failings, but you know that whatever it was, it did impact him for the rest of his life. And it doesn't sound like he could ever, you know, run from it. So it's kind of a, a sad story in, in many ways. And as we've said, I mean, he did have his strengths. Um, so let me talk, you know, we've talked about leaders. You mentioned Lipton, obviously Winters is there. We've talked about Sobel. Are there any other, and there are leaders throughout, as you said, in this episode, in this show, Tom, but are there any other leaders that stick out to you for either emulation or avoidance, other leaders and band of brothers who, who, who you think are influential. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, Buck showed 
some incredible leadership skills, you know, all throughout the the series and that we were exposed to clearly. And, and I think that, you know, it, it came about in a, in a different way. His way <laughs> of, of showing leadership was to, you know, become one of the guys, right. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, to blend in. And that was his way of gaining trust. That's, that's what he knew. So, you know, it, it was well balanced when, when winners had to tell him, Hey, never put yourself in a position to take from these guys. That's and, a great line. I love and, that right. line. <laughs> and, and that really is important because, you know, you do hold that position of authority, that position of power. Um, so make sure that there's never any doubt that you have their best interest in mind. And, you know, Buck shows that all along because mm. he's willing to be out there with his guys doing, quote, the dirty work, um, you know, that that typically he didn't have to do, but he, it was certainly part of, of how he led, right? And and going out and, and checking up on his guys and making sure that they had what they needed. No, uh, agreed. I think that, you know, Buck, uh, Buck was a good example of that, that leader who was just really down to earth, respected by the team, but, uh, but also, you know, saw himself as one of them. I think, you know, I think you could also look at, um, you know, Lieutenant Dyke, you know, if, if, so, if Cap, if Sobel was the, um, the leader of the toxic leader, I think Dyke could be, um, easily cast as the disengaged leader. Right. Very good time. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and, and, yeah. and again, the movie doesn't give, unfortunately, you know, you have to, to make a movie successful or any story successful, you have to have, you have to have your, um, your protagonists and your antagonists. But, um, mm-hmm. another thing that I was, I forget if it was a video I watched or, uh, something I read, but you know, uh, but Dyke had previously been injured and that's something they didn't really, uh, in battle. And they didn't, um, say anything about that in the, you know, that wasn't brought up in the movie. They just really highlighted his, um, how he napped, you know, he was always yawning and taking naps and going away and then and culminating in um, his indecisive, the indecisiveness under fire. Right. Yeah. But, um, but you could see from, you know, a, you know, the importance of engagement because I mean, even if he, even if he, um, if he would have not even shown the last piece of that, the, the last battle where he was, where he was removed from command um, during that battle. Uh, You know, if you take that out of it and just look at his engagement, he was friendly um, to the team. He, you know, he asked the question, but it just came, but because it was so surface um, and it just, it really didn't, uh, it really didn't bring any level of respect from the team. You know, the takeaway I have from the Dyke uh, episode is you were talking about culture of taking risk and allowing that. And and there's a line, you know, it's when uh, the character who plays Carver Lipton is narrating and, you know, kind of wrapping up the episode where he says, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Dyke wasn't a bad leader because he made bad decisions. He was a bad mm-hmm. leader because he made no decisions. Um, and yeah. that stuck with me because, you know, I think, you know, good people will forgive a bad decision made uh, by a leader if, if they're honest, admit it, and 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 recognize it. But having the inability, whether it's because of the culture that exists in the organization or whatever, 
just not making decisions at all is unacceptable to people that are required to follow. Yeah, that does that decision paralysis or you know getting vapor lock where you can't decide what to do because you just don't want to make the wrong decision is actually the worst thing that you can do at all because you can't correct something that you don't do. Um, and so if you you know you have to have a, a an action in order to be able to adjust if it wasn't the the best decision. Um, and by, by making no decision, you really, you know, it, it's the worst thing that you can do. That's a great line, Jeff. I, I like that. <laughs> you yeah, can't I'm, correct something you don't do. Yeah, that is a good line. Um, I feel bad, Jeff. Yeah, no, no worries <laughs> there. Uh, one of the other things that I think we, we might have overlooked um, is that, you know, we haven't talked at all about Nixon very much. Mm. Um, and I, I think it, it, you know, warrants some some thought that he really was a very good leader, even though he was never put in a position to, you know, be responsible for, you know, the troops immediately underneath him. But if you think about it, you know, he's, he's, he did exhibit many good leadership characteristics and traits just from, you know, the support that he was giving um, and the effort that he was providing at a different level in a different way. And if you bring that back to, what we're doing in our facilities and, and people are doing all around the, the world, you know, there are many quote unsung heroes. And, and so it, I think it behooves us all to recognize that, you know, you, you don't have to have, um, you know, people that are responsible to you to be a good leader. Um, you, you can be a good leader by doing the things that are um, going to help the organization, and certainly the people that you work with. Well, he certainly was a confidant of winners, yeah. right? And he was, he supported them. And, you know, I think one of the, the things that he did that was great leadership was when he, you know, got plucked to go over back home to sell war bonds and realized <laughs> there was a leadership problem within the company yeah. that couldn't be solved easily. He basically gave that away to someone else to help, you know, make sure that the men below winners had a good competent leader. At least it solved one of their problems. I mean, that's a pretty extreme sacrifice. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, especially I, I with think, a guy like him from like a station in life. Right. I mean, he was, he was well off, you know, his company his his family owned the company and he wanted to stay. He did not leave. So yeah, he, he he's an interesting, you know, he's an interesting character. It's almost like, and I, and you know, as somebody who loves history, I always wonder this, like if you were to dig into just any story, would you be able to find that these people were almost made for this moment in time? Like if you look at the, the folks from Band of Brothers, and I think they've, again, there's some inaccuracies in it, but they've done a tremendous job staying true to the story. Like it almost seems like each of these folks was plucked from a period where they were especially made for this moment. And that sounds a little bit corny, but you know, you got winters coming out of the farmlands of Pennsylvania, unassuming, athletic. You got Nixon from New Jersey. You got Lipton from Alabama. And it just, it seems like they were perfectly scripted and they hit almost every big event across Europe from D-Day until VE Day. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that, Pete. I, in fact, I, I had that thought when I was watching it how you know and, and a lot of teams are like that if you know, being a student of history or someone a student of history i read a book um called the admirals a while back about the the, the major admirals of world war ii 
Um, and those guys were so different, but their separate skill sets combined mm. essentially resulted in us winning the war in the Pacific um, and to not n- no small part in Europe. And, you know, had uh, those individuals not been there at the right time in the right way with the right skills yeah. uh, that complemented each other, uh, filled each other's voids. Uh, I, I don't, I think we'd be having a different podcast right now or no podcast at all. So, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think I, you're right, Steve. I do. I, I, I absolutely think you're right. Um, what you know, I wanted to do oh, go ahead. and just hold that for one sec, Jeff, um, we've gone a little long, which is good. So if you don't want to listen, you can hang up and not listen, but we're going to keep going for a little bit longer before we have a hard break. And I just want to, again, I, it's been, a little bit of time. I just want to thank our three guests for high reliability today. Steve Sponbrook, Tom Elliott, Jeff Schuler. We're talking leadership lessons from Band of Brothers. Jeff, go ahead, please. No, I was just uh, trying to relate what um, Steve was talking about. Um, and and he triggered something in me that made me think, you know, um, we as, as leaders in the, in the facilities departments and the, um, you know, engineering departments around the, the uh, world, we we really do need to be cognizant of the fact that it does take a diverse group of individuals to create the best circumstances for positive outcomes. Um, and and so, you know, so often, you know, us, us engineers get together and who do we want to be around? Other engineers. They think like us. They walk like us. We have the same thought process. We laugh at the same jokes. Um, and so, you know, it, it really is uncomfortable at times to bring in people or include people that think differently than we do, especially for us, because in our world, things tend to be so black and white, right? And really, you know, we need people that are going to live in the gray a little bit, uh, to help us inform better decisions that we need to make about what's going on with the facilities. Can I jump in for a sec? Living in the gray? And I, and, um, because I want to get to this guy before we have to hang up. And I think living in the gray, it's almost like you were teed up for that, Jeff. I think the one guy who lives in the gray, and he's actually become my favorite person or most intriguing person in this miniseries is Spears. Um, yeah. He is, so, you know, if you've seen it, you know who he is. But Spears, I've you know, I, you just dig into some of this. And um, it, so... One quick story, and then I'll get to a point I'm, I'm lumbering here. But when Ambrose wrote this book, so back early, he wrote, uh, published 1992. I was listening to an a interview that Winters gave. So Ambrose writes the book. It goes to uh, the publisher, and the publisher reviews it. And the publisher says to Ambrose, we're going to have problems with this. And the problems they were talking about are relative to Ronald Spears. In the in the um, miniseries, you see him shooting um, unarmed Union, Ju- uh, German soldiers in in the second episode, and there's actually there's no proof that that did happen. Though he did, and he made no bones about it. Though he did, you know, and, and again, put yourself in the time they weren't taking prisoners. Though that did occur, that specific episode, we don't think that's historically accurate, or they don't think that's historically accurate. But anyways, Ambrose calls uh, Winters again, early 90s, Ambrose says, we're going to have a problem. They're afraid that they're going to get sued. And so Winters, and I heard him recounting the story, and you can find it. It's out on the, the internet. Winters says, don't worry about it. Winters calls Spears 
and they remained close friends throughout their lives. Um, and Winters tells Spears what's going on. Spears like, nope, not a problem. Go with it. And they did. And because Spears, again, Spears lived in that in that gray. And I, I think for me, he's the most intriguing guy in that he's mysterious. Um, he didn't smoke was another thing I learned. You know, in the in and that you talk about that second episode where he mows down the the German soldiers. Um, cigarettes are a big part of that, right? He gives them cigarettes, then he supposedly shoots them, Captain Spears. Um, but he was a non-smoker. So anyways, we could spend a lot of time on Spears, but at least for me, he's the most intriguing guy in the whole show because he lives in that gray and he's a tremendous leader. What do you guys think about Spears? Well, I, it's, you know, it's, uh, I think, I think I also agree. Spears is one of the more, uh, one of the most interesting characters in the, uh, in the series. I think it, he's, uh, you know, living in, you know, living in the gray, we're often, you know, we're always asked to live in the gray um, because unfortunately we do not live in a world where everything can be just clearly laid out in black and white. Mm -hmm. And, um, and certainly applies in uh, healthcare facilities as um, uh, just as much, if not more, uh, more than a lot of other places. But, you know, I think it's for Spears, it's also knowing what uh, an understanding in his leadership, knowing when to live in the gray and how far in the gray to live <laughs> and mm. work. Right. That's good. Um, yeah. Because, you know, it's like we, you know, the, there was always, I, my understanding is he, you know, uh, he, ne he never, he never said he didn't do those things uh, <laughs> to, to the John armed German soldiers. Right. Never, um, you know, he just kind of let the, he kind of let the legend live on, but the, um, but I think one thing that's telling is at the end or, you know, one of the later, I'm trying to find it in your, in the notes, you know, later on, uh, on the last, on that one of the last episodes where, um, oh, yeah. that, um, yeah. So 10 Tom points. Yeah, I think so. Where they kill where, um, one of them was killed. Um, yes. and you know, he hold, and I, and I will, and there watch a couple of clips, um, along with the movie, I watch a couple of clips where, you know, it shows him he was visibly moved and yet, and just at that point, you know, everybody steps back. You, you really think, you know, to the, the detail of the movie or the, the episode, the direction of the, of the um, acting, you know, the, you could, the tension was palpable as, as he held the, uh, as he held a pistol to the, um, to the guy's head. Right. Everybody kind of steps, he pulls out his pistol, holds it to, to a guy's head and, and everybody steps back. Um, stop chewing, um, the gum chewing stops, close their eyes. Right. And I mean, he could have easily, he could have, you know, and it looked like he was really split and, you know, ready to pull the trigger. Um, and probably nobody would have blamed him for it. Um, but, uh, but, he made the decision to walk, you know, to put the gun down and walk away and leave it to the MPs, you know, but it's a mat, but it, it really is. Cause uh, you know, how often are we asked to say, you know, we, cause oftentimes we're given a choice between two evils, right? Uh, we're given uh, facilities where it's like, we're given choice in order to continue operating. You have a choice between two things, both of, both of which are, aren't exactly to code but you got to pick one. Those are the only choices you have. 
right? And um, and if you and if you don't pick those, if you pick neither of them, then you basically come out with indecision. Um, indecision, as was discussed earlier. So yeah, I think that's a. I think you know plays a really important role in that, uh, and illustrates that well. You know, I think it's it, as Winter said. You know, Winter said you need lethal soldiers, and Spears was a lethal soldier. True, true. I think one of the point that points that Tom illustrates is that you know often we get confronted with problems in our in our industry, and we often think about it in in terms of what we need, as opposed to looking at them. Uh, the solutions uh, with respect to what we have, um, because it doesn't matter what you need, you have what you have. So you figure it out. And that's really that, that critical thinking that Steve was talking about earlier that, you know, everybody has, you know, just if we've been afforded ourselves the opportunity to, to, you know, take a step back, pause for a moment and okay, this is how we're going to do this. And, you know, solicit some advice from people that are, that are, you know, obviously have some experience in this area. No, that's a, that's a great point. Um, cause I can, you know, it's like, uh, I often tell my team, you know, they say, well, it, sh- it should be this way. It's like, well, um, just eliminate the word should from your vocabulary because should, shouldn't exist because <laughs> it's not about what should be. It is, it's about what is, um, you know, my mind goes to a completely different movie that we probably, that we can maybe attack later on, Apollo 13. Oh, I was uh, just thinking that same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought it up because I was about to. So, no, Stay focused. Great, great Stay point. focused. That, that'll be our next one, Pete. <laughs> okay. We got it. <laughs> well, I mean, the classic line in there is Oh, make where, your point, uh, though. Yeah, you got to make your point. Don't leave us hanging. Yeah. <laughs> Oh no, that that was a point. It was that just um, I was, you know, you've also often so often uh, where uh, even from leaders, even from our leadership, and this is about uh, leading both up and down. And I think which is something Spears also did very well, leading leading both up and down um, the chain and across. Right? Was the uh, was the fact that he he lived in the he. He lived by what is and not uh, what should be or what he wished would be. So I thought that was a good point. I've often, you know, relative to the Spears thing and what you just described there, Tom, I mean, they asked him afterwards, why didn't he? And he said, I must have had a little bit of doubt that this was the guy. It was the guy. But I also wonder, too, at that point, and we talked about this with COVID fatigue. I wonder if that point of the war and who could have, you know, who could have said otherwise, he was just tired of the killing. You know, right. he just didn't want, yeah. he didn't want to do it anymore. He had done it and done it so effectively, but, you know, sink in the aftermath said you should have shot the SOB. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a lot of trouble. Right. And, <laughs> you know, that's the difference between people that live in the gray and people that are black and white. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. Yeah. That's really good. Yep. Steve, did you want to say anything about Spears or. I think you guys covered it well. I mean, he was one of my favorite characters in there too. I mean, I think he, he certainly led by example. He was not risk averse at all. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, and I think he, he, he recognized the fact that, you know, respect was earned and, uh, and he was in the right place at the right time. And, and for all of his faults, he was a great leader. You know, one of the things I wanted to make sure we discussed here for a brief moment was um, a phrase that we've, used maybe, or certainly talked about. Um, and, and that's leading up, right? How do you, how do you deal with a, your boss? And from that perspective, 
it, you know, managing or dealing with your boss is one of the most important things that you have to know how to do. And we see it all throughout the entire series between Spears and, and, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the, the people that he reports to and the enlisted guys and who they report to. And then, you know, all the way up to, you know, how, um, you know, Colonel Sink is handled. Um, because, you know, really, if you think about it, your, your job is with respect to this topic, your job is to make your boss effective. Right. And so you have to, you know, in order to do that, you have to be sensitive to their unique styles and what they're bringing. Right. And um, to that, you need to be able to understand what their strengths and weaknesses are, because uh, what we know to be true is that, you know, you, I think uh, Tom said it earlier, you know, you, you really want to, you know, increase your strengths to the point that it makes your weaknesses irrelevant. Um, and so to make sure that your boss um, understands what can be expected of you is very, very important. So those conversations have to be had in order for them to understand how you're going to help them, right? Because your job is to always stay ahead of the boss and, and what they're doing. So, um, <laughs> so that they're never asking for something that yeah. you don't anticipate that they're going to need, that they always have it. Absolutely. All right. Um, you know, final thoughts, gentlemen, we're coming up to the end and I know you've done some research. Jeff, you just talked about something that you want to get. Is there any, uh, you know, as we close, any thoughts or anything that we didn't get to that you just want to touch upon relative to healthcare facilities, leadership, band of brothers, anything that you just want to you know, get out there because we just didn't have an opportunity because we went to so many different topics areas. Open floor for topics we didn't get to. I, I just think it's a, a great series full of positive and negative leadership examples that anyone can learn from, you know, and I, I, I know it's, it's entertaining, but it's also, uh, you know, I reflect on Tony Dungy's book, quiet strength, which I read probably 15 years ago. I mean, he talks about what shaped him as a coach was both the negative and the positive experiences he had in his career as a player and as coach. And he assimilated all those into his style. And I think all of that's laid out here in band of brothers. And, uh, so, you know, be entertained and learn. Yeah. 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 For, you know, for me, I, I think I, as I look through it, uh, you know, go through this series and look at the leadership examples, I think one thing that um, does stand out and it's been mentioned in, in a couple of, from a couple of different perspectives throughout this, uh, throughout our time together here is, you know, that leaders are, that first and foremost, leaders are human and, you know, and it, it almost historically, it almost seems the greater the leader, the greater, you know, you, you look at leaders of the history and in, in, in the series and uh, great leaders also have great weaknesses to that contrast their own great strengths. The, the series itself didn't really highlight any of, um, and understandably from a, from a movie perspective, um, uh, winters, any of really winters is, uh, weaknesses, but we know we have them. Right. Um, and you know, that it, you know, the movie worked hard on developing those contrasts, but the fact is, is that, um, as we lead and as we build, ex I think as in facilities or any, in any frame we're leading in that the, that we help those who work for us and work with us to understand that we are, we are human and we are, um, into, um, 
points that were made earlier that, you know, say, Hey, you know, I, I screwed this up. You know, I made a bad, I made this bad decision. We should have gone this other way. Lesson learned. Let's move on and help build that expectation that, Hey, we're all human beings making the best of it, but also carry that on to our own leadership. Um, uh, those over us to see them in the same light, knowing that, you know, as frustrating as maybe a, um, a, a leader in an organization may be at times, you know, focus on their focus on the strengths, understand that there will be weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, I'm thinking about what, uh, you know, both Steve and Tom have said, it's, it's, it's kind of um, pivoting on the same topics, but in a different, different manner in that, you know, while people, um, do have weaknesses and while everybody has different strengths, I think it really does come down to understanding that, um, do, do we allow the space for people to recover within themselves from a mistake that they're just not letting themselves up from? Right. And, and Mm -hmm. so, you know, are you going to show that empathy or compassion uh, in the appropriate way that allows them to see, you know, the fact that you made a mistake isn't really the issue. The fact that you're still the one in charge and you still have a responsibility to lead, that's the issue. And so to the, to the point that you're spending all the effort and energy uh, trying to um, recover or what what often happens overcompensate for that mistake really is going to breed additional mistakes. So let's really deal with the ability for you to understand that you don't have to be perfect because perfect isn't the requirement. Striving to be perfect, that's what the goal is because mm-hmm. we all know that we're going to fail, right? And to to take risks is really the key you know, calculated risks, informed risks, but that's really the key to being successful. And that's what leaders do, right? Because if you're going to take risks, you're going to know failure. And it isn't that you're going to accept the possibility of it. It's that you're going to know it. So really, how comfortable are you with understanding that that's going to happen? And are you still going to be able to to get in the arena and and do your job? That's a great, great point. Yeah, very good point. Well, gentlemen, I have nothing further to add. <laughs> um, I appreciate your time. So I want to, again, thank my guests who joined me for a lot of time today. It was a great discussion. I think we could have gone on, but we have jobs to do as well. Um, my guest, Tom Elliott, Director of Facilities, Sutter Medical Center, Sacramento, California. Jeff Schuler, owner, G.H. Schuler Consulting, Mission Viejo, California. And Steve Sponbrook, CEO, MSL Healthcare Partners. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Pleasure. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. I did as well. I am Peter Martin from Goslin Martin Associates. You've been listening to the High Reliability Podcast. Thank you for listening. And we will be back again with a episode, a new episode. And once more, happy Veterans Day to Tom and Jeff. And happy Veterans Day to all of the veterans listening to this podcast. I think it's a great podcast to have on Veterans Day. Take care.